Well, good morning. This morning we'll continue our study of the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 30, which is the whole chapter. The title I've given to this lesson is Silence and Shift in the Ecclesia. The first 10 chapters of the transitional book of Acts progressively reveal to the first Ecclesia the details concerning the implication that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. The Old Testament lesson of total depravity is presumed and wo woven into the discussion largely by condemning the Jews for crucifying Jesus, who was the Christ, the suffering servant of the Old Testament. There's no way for the Jews to self-rectify this reality. They were totally guilty of physically killing Jesus. This is imagery for the spiritual reality of total depravity. The only solution is the grace of God imparted through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to impotent mankind. The Jews were ethnically biased against the Gentiles. The events in Cornelius' house, recorded in Acts, persuaded the Apostle Peter that the purpose of God was to build a multi-ethnic New Testament ecclesia. The question of whether or not Gentiles will be part of the body of Christ was settled. However, there are still two remaining issues blocking the apostles' understanding of the gospel of grace here at this time in Acts 11. They were interrelated but distinct issues. Number one is the role of works in salvation, and two is the role of Judaism in salvation. These questions will not be formally addressed until the first council of the ecclesia recorded in Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 11 continues the unfolding revelation of Jesus as Lord and Christ. This was given to the first century ecclesia. This was the major message of Peter on the day of Pentecost, that Jesus was Lord and Christ. The news about the Gentiles spread throughout Judea. In other words, Cornelius' conversion uh, became widely known. Peter went to Jerusalem where he was confronted by the Jewish leaders regarding his role in receiving the Gentiles in the ecclesia. They were probably saying, Peter, what are you thinking? You know that we have nothing to do with the Gentiles. Well, Peter knew better, and he began his apologetic uh, in chapter 1 of, of, excuse me, chapter 11, verse 1, and goes through chapter 11, verse 17, and the opponent's response is given in verse 18. It's interesting, their response is very brief and very fitting, and we will get to that shortly. Then in the rest of the chapter, verses 19 through 26, the growth of the ecclesia now moves to Antioch. And that's significant because it's almost like something shifted, that the emphasis of the leadership of the ecclesia was going to perhaps take a little shift, maybe a relocation, a moving of the capital, if you wish. Antioch was the capital of Syria, the nation of Syria, but it would become the capital of the Christian movement and the apostolic, apostolic work of the Apostle Paul that's recorded in most of the rest of, of the book of Acts. Jesus commissioned to his apostles in Acts 1-8 was being fulfilled. You remember that text says, Jesus said to his apostles, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You see, Christianity is lived in reality. It is, has a physical manifestation. The Holy Spirit's power in us is seen in the tangible realm. Uh, 
So you will have power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. Remember, that's the word marte, which means we know the word martyr from that. It means you're willing to die to bear witness to what you personally know and what you experienced when you saw and heard Jesus. They were eyewitnesses. None of us are eyewitnesses. We are getting what we know about Jesus from them through the words of Scripture. So Antioch now is going to step up and play a new role as, as we go through this stepping stone, this transition from Jerusalem being the center of the Christian world to now Antioch becoming the center. So let's go see how this took place in Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 1. The apostles and the brothers and sisters who were throughout Judea heard about the Gentiles that they had also received the word. And here the word is translated, it's a translation of the word logos or logos. The word of God, when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, which would be the Jews, criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. That was not acceptable in the Jewish culture of that day. Now, that was strictly a tradition. That was not something in Scripture. So the New Testament Ecclesia in Judea heard the report that the Gentiles were included in the body of Christ. And Peter returned to Jerusalem was met with criticism from the Jews, from the Jewish leaders. The objection was based only on custom, not on Scripture. So in the Old Testament, uncircumcised men were those outside the people of God. They were outside the people of, of uh, the nation of Israel. They were outside God's call in um, ecclesia in the Old Testament. In fact, the Septuagint uses the word ecclesia to refer to the people of God in the Old Testament. As an act of holiness, the custom was not to fellowship with those outside the covenant community. Peter knew this, but he was convicted that this custom was wrong. He learned this in Acts chapter 10 with his whole encounter with Cornelius, and he watched what the Holy Spirit did there. You notice that if you go back to Acts 10, you'll see that Peter, in many ways, was an observer of what was going on. He was an agent, but he wasn't really even fully aware of what was happening. He was largely watching things and trying to understand things and interpret things as the Holy Spirit was working. Throughout that chapter, the Holy Spirit is working behind the scenes, setting everything up so that it would be clear that the New Testament ecclesia would be ethnically diverse. All ethnic groups were part of the ecclesia. Now that sounds so simple to us, but it was so hard for the first church to really get that. Now going on to verses 4 through 17. This is Peter's apologetic. He's defending himself now against the accusation that what he did was inappropriate. You shouldn't have gone to Cornelius. You shouldn't have introduced the gospel to him. You shouldn't be calling him part of the ecclesia. But Peter began to explain to them step by step what happened and why he did what he did. He said in verse 5, I was in the town of Joppa praying, and I saw in a trance an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners from heaven, and it came to me. When I looked closely and considered it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth, the wild beasts, the reptiles, and the birds of the sky. I also heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, I said. You would think Peter would have been 
you know, freed from that uh, famous oxymoron, no, Lord. But he said it again. This was at least the third time he had said it. No, Lord, I said, for I, nothing impure or ritually unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice answered from heaven a second time, what God has made clean, you must not call impure. Now, this happened three times, and everything was drawn up again into heaven. And at that very moment, three men who had been sent to him from Caesarea arrived at the house where he was. And the Spirit told me to accompany them with no doubts at all. It's so interesting to see how even though he has the vision and the trance, he also had the Spirit some way communicating. Now, maybe he's just interpreting the division as the Spirit talking to him, or maybe the Spirit talked to him in some other way. We don't really know, but it's clear he attributed this revelation to the Spirit. The Spirit told me to accompany them with no doubts. That means no skepticism. I don't have any, I'm not questioning this. I'm just going to be obedient. These six brothers also accompanied me. Now, there apparently were at least six. There may have been more than six, but he's now in Jerusalem explaining himself, and he had six men there that were with him. So we know there were at least six men that went with, went with him, if not more. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we went into the man's house. He reported to us how he had seen the angel speaking in his house and saying, send to Joppa and call for Simon, who is also named Peter. He will speak a message to you by which you and all your household will be saved. Now notice that he is listening to the testimony of Cornelius, and he's going to respond to it, but he still doesn't know what it means. He still doesn't understand why he's there, but he's there. He's been obedient to the revelation he has, so he began to speak. The Holy Spirit came down on them just as on us at the beginning. I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You see, immediately when this speaking in tongues breaks out, where the Gentiles are speaking in the tongues, and now the Jews, the apostolic Jews, namely Peter, are listening to the Gentiles. This is the opposite of what you had in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, you have the apostles speaking in tongues, and the, the, the Jewish people who were part of the dispersion were hearing it. Now you have the recipients of the revelation speaking in tongues and the apostles listening. So it's, it's interesting, the, the, the contrast. This is uh, well, arguably the Pentecost for the Gentiles. This is when they are indwelled and filled with the Holy Spirit, and the manifestation is speaking in tongues as a sign to validate the Holy Spirit is in them. And that's how Peter sees it. Peter sees it as a sign and immediately connects that sign with something that Jesus told him. In Acts chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus told them that John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So Peter realizes, I'm seeing what Peter, what Jesus talked about in Acts chapter 1, verse 5. So now he concludes, verse 17, if then God gave them the same gift that he also gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, how could I possibly hinder God?
Now that is so powerful. To think that we could hinder God. And the way we hinder God is by failing to believe truth. Anytime we do that, we are interfering. We're, we're a stumbling block. This is why in the SLA training, it's so important that people understand blocks and understand what the truth is. You must receive the truth. If you don't receive the truth, it will be a block to you doing what God has called you to do. So Peter has laid out a powerful personal testimony. He is a witness of this reality that Acts 1-8 was fulfilled here. This is the, the uttermost parts of the world. Remember, that was the command. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. So now the Gentiles are the uttermost parts of the world. And he's connecting all these dots and recognizing, I get it. Jesus has always been multi-ethnic. We Jews have been unaware of that or ignorant of that or refuse to accept that. And we need to receive this. And why are we hindering God? We have no standing to hinder God's will. So that's his apologetic. So now is the response of the people that are listening to him. One verse, verse 18. The response is silence. That is a great response, a perfect response. And when they heard this, they became silent. They had nothing to say. What can you say when the Holy Spirit has clearly indicated his will by what he's done with the people at Cornelius' home, empowering them to speak in languages they didn't know, and giving Peter and his, his cohorts there the ability to recognize what was going on and connect the dots, that this is what Jesus said would happen. The Holy Spirit fell on them just like us. Therefore, they have, they've been given life just like we have. Look at what the text says. So when they heard that, they became silent, and they glorified God. So there's first silence, and now they glorify God. And the way they glorify God is they speak. So they say this. So then God has given repentance, resulting in life even to the Gentiles. So you can see that's another way to frame the gospel. Repentance resulting in life even to the Gentiles. So this is a powerful reality. The Jewish critics of what happened to Cornelius' house, the critics of Peter, now are silenced when they're faced with the truth of Peter's testimony. So this is a pivotal moment. This is a key moment, because now you could say Acts 1-8 has been fulfilled. You see, now every ethnicity that, that they knew of has been exposed to this truth. They were told to carry this and disciple the ethnicities, not to evangelize them, but to disciple them. That's what Matthew 28 is all about. It's a mandate to discipleship of the ethnicities, all ethnicities. And that is now, you could say, arguably been accomplished because we've had Jerusalem got it, Judea got it, Samaria got it, and now the Gentiles. And actually, Cornelius was the second Gentile that was brought to Christ. The Ethiopian eunuch was the first in Acts chapter 8, but that didn't seem to register. So I guess the Holy Spirit did it a second time. Peter had to go around the mountain again to get it. And when he finally got it, he was able to go communicate it well and credibly 
to those that he was uh, fellowshipping with in Jerusalem. So they glorify God. Repentance of life, repentance resulting in life has been given to all ethnicities. This is the gospel. So now the shift begins. Now that we know this truth, we understand there's no question that the ethnic groups are included in the body of Christ. Now what? Well, the next thing that happens is we are we shift the scene. We go from Jerusalem back to Antioch here in verse 19. And we discover that uh, things have been going on behind the scenes that we really didn't know about. He says, uh, verse 19, now those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. So you remember when Stephen was martyred in the end of Acts chapter 7, then in Acts chapter 8, it says all of the, basically the Lord scattered the disciples throughout Judea and Samaria. And it went even beyond that. And he scattered them for the purpose of executing his will. Their role was to take his message to the ethnic groups. And so as they did that, they, they stayed true to the Jewish people they connected to. But some of them recognized that this was going to be multi-ethnic. So not everyone was confused on the ethnicity question. Some were, some weren't. Verse 20, but some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. You see, if you believe, you will turn to the Lord. And if you turn to the Lord, you will believe. Faith is a marker. The marker of somebody coming to Christ is they begin to express faith in Christ and live based on faith in Christ. So that's what we're looking for. It's not what they say. We've adopted a very shallow standard today. We will accept someone's personal profession of faith and we'll baptize them based on that and admit them to fellowship in a Christian community. That's not what these people did. They were looking for people who turned to the Lord. That means that they changed. They were transformed. They didn't just make a profession of faith. They changed how they lived. Verse 22, news about them reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. So the news spread. We don't know how the news spread, but it got to back to Jerusalem, what was going on in Antioch. Now, that's that was a long way away. That was probably a, a week or two of travel for for Barnabas to make this trip. I didn't look up the exact mileage, but it was probably seven, 800 miles, something like that. So it would have been a long journey. And that's basically how they went back then would be either by foot or he would have to go to the Mediterranean to get a boat and go north, paralleling the coast till he get to the, the southern side of Asia Minor and then go to Antioch from there. So one, some way or another, he got there. When he arrived, verse 23, and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true. To remain true means to hold fast to the Lord and be devoted with full, their hearts being fully devoted to the Lord. And, and being devoted means we set forth a thing. That is, it is the thing. 
it is the centering point of our life is to be devoted with our hearts to the Lord. That is the main thing. Verse 24, for he was a, it says here that Cornelius, excuse me, Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Now that's an interesting, another interesting uh, verse there because it gives us a definition of what a good man is. We tend to call everybody a good man. That's kind of a, just a slang term in our vernacular and culture today. We always talk about people being good, but that's really probably a, a sloppy way to, to address this because good is a divine attribute. Good means that which aligns with God. We see that when Jesus dealt with a rich young ruler and the rich young ruler said to Jesus, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The first thing Jesus camped on was, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. What Jesus is saying, good is a divine attribute. You applied a divine attribute to me. Do you understand what you did? And of course, the rich young ruler didn't have a clue what he was really saying. What he was really saying is you, you are God. And he didn't really know it. Jesus was trying to make that point. I think probably very few people, if anybody, got it. But we have a recorded scripture, so now we get to understand it. For he was a good man. Barnabas was a man whose heart was turned to the Lord. He was a man who remained true. He was holding fast to the Lord. He was devoted to the Lord. He had a pure heart. And that was expressed by by being full of the Holy Spirit, which would suggest the gifts of the Spirit would be manifest, and faith, living a lifestyle of faith, not by sight. Now, we, we talk about walking by faith, not by sight, uh, pretty casually, without really understanding much of what we're talking about. Walking by faith means I always believe God, no matter what the circumstances. That's really hard, because we tend to be very influenced by our circumstances. We tend to be, our mood can be affected by our circumstances in a heartbeat. And true man of, of, of truly a good man will manifest the fruit of the spirit and be steadfast and always believing that God is working good no matter how devastating and difficult and challenging the circumstances might be. Reading on, and large numbers of people were added to the Lord. So we have here a record that there were, there were a lot of people that the Holy Spirit was touching and regenerating. And so it was a powerful time. Now, it looks like that Barnabas felt like he needed help. So verse 25 records that he went to Tarsus to search for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church, the ecclesia, and taught large numbers. So they, they camped out in Antioch. This was not a one-and-done weekend. That's how we do missions today. We go someplace, we do an event, and we get out of there. And uh, missionologists call that one and done. Uh, it's like, okay, let it. We, 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 we discipled a bunch of people that weekend. That is really not the mindset here of Barnabas and Paul. Uh, they, they're camping out here in Antioch and really working with these people for a whole year. And if Acts 19 is any kind of guide, in Acts 19, you have the same kind of thing for two years, and they met daily for two years there. I, they, they very well could have met daily here. Uh, we wouldn't do something like that, meet every day and be taught theology, be taught the doctrines of the faith, You know, come to know what, what it means that Jesus is Lord in Christ. 
devote a whole year of that. That was probably a fa fantastic seminary, but uh, we don't have those today because we don't have vision for this kind of thing. You see, the first century vision of being a follower of Christ was to be a real disciple, a real follower, which means you had to be trained. You had to be trained to obey the commands of Christ. That's exactly what Matthew 28 tells us. The mandate given to the 11 apostles by Jesus was to make disciples of all ethnic groups. Right there. They didn't get it. Clearly they didn't get it. If they had gotten it, we wouldn't have had to have Acts 10. Because Acts 10, you know, which was downstream of Matthew 28, in Acts 10, Peter still didn't get it, that the all the ethnicities were included. So this is this is a big problem, is you know, we've got to understand what John is really saying. So they're finally getting it here. And the rest of Matthew 28 tells them, you go to the ethnic groups and you baptize them. And the ones you baptize, clearly you don't just baptize anybody. You're looking for those the Holy Spirit is working with. And because their standard then was not words, but works, they looked at their life. Does your lifestyle reflect you've been born again? If it does, then we'll baptize you. If it doesn't, we won't. It doesn't matter Tell you know what you say that you believe. What matters is how you live. And the second thing is we're going to teach you to obey the commands of Christ. We're going to train you. And if you've been through BLS 200, you know there's a difference between teaching and training. And clearly, Scripture is mandating that we train. Teaching to obey is training. I'm teaching you the truth, and I'm holding you accountable to live it. I'm holding you accountable to understand it and live it. And so that's what it meant to be a disciple. So for two, for a whole year, you got Paul and Barnabas, probably two of the greatest communicators of the day, communicating with this large group of people the truth that Jesus was Lord in Christ and all that the implications of that truth. So that went on for a whole year, and it became such a remarkable event that for the first time in history, the disciples, the followers of Christ, the people of the way were called Christians. It wasn't in Jerusalem, it's at Antioch. Antioch's the first place where they're called Christians. Finally, the concluding verses of this uh, chapter are verses 27 through 30. Now we shift scenes, a different scene. The word comes to Antioch that there's a famine in Jerusalem and things are not going well. So the verse, scripture says, in those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and predicted by the spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place during the reign of Claudius. Each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to their brothers and sisters who lived in Judea. This, they did this, sending it to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul. So, it's so interesting to see that the community in Jerusalem, which had been so strong and had been financially very strong, you know, because in Acts, Acts 4, you see them making sure that every need was met. And even in Acts 6, when some need was not being met properly, uh, it's quickly put in order by C4 people. And they recognize that that was the proper way. That was kingdom work. Kingdom work is bringing order out of chaos, and C4 people bring order out of chaos, no matter what they're called to. In that case, they were called a food distribution, and that was even called ministry. Sadly, today we get ministry confused. 
We think ministry is a vocation. Ministry is something every Christian is called to. Ministry means to execute the commands of Christ. This is what every Christian is called to do, to execute the commands of Christ. So that's another distortion we need to be very uh, cognizant of and deal with. So just want to turn to some theological considerations now. Uh, I want to just give you some examples of nuances of the gospel of the kingdom based on the truth that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. And I, I spent some time looking at what Luke wrote in the first 11 chapters of Acts and beyond that as well. I've got a few references beyond that in here. But mostly these are things found in the early days of the first ecclesia when, it, when Acts 1-8 is being accomplished. If you believe that Acts 1-8 was fulfilled by the time of Acts 10, that that was the fulfillment and, and that was all done. And really Paul's work really wasn't fulfilling Acts 1-8. It was just going out and taking the his apostolic message on. But all the Gentiles have been accepted into the body of Christ by the time that he did his missionary journeys. So you could argue that Acts 1-8 was fulfilled by Acts 10. If you believe that, then you would think that we would probably have a good, pretty good revelation of the gospel by the time we get to Acts 10. You know, scripture is not written like a textbook where where it doesn't say, okay, now this is the gospel, then it writes down all the nuances of the gospels. No, you have to go and pick these out inductively by reading what scripture says in various places. So I've just picked out a few points here, theological points here to make this make this distinction here. You know, you'll notice here that I've, I've listed, this is no particular order, really. I've just tried to pick out the ones I felt like were uh, may, maybe the most significant. First point here is that Jesus will judge all humanity based on righteousness. This is a foundational reality of the gospel. If you don't have judgment, you don't need good news. The reason you need good news is because you've got judgment. And furthermore, Israel is a proxy for humanity. <clears throat> they crucified Jesus, and and it, really, it, it illustrates the impotency that we have to self-save. You see, we can't go do enough good works to be acceptable with God. That was the big story from the Old Testament. See, it, they illustrated that for us. You know, every human being doesn't have to have that experience. We can learn that just by looking to Israel to learn that. So that's part of the backdrop. Uh, we can't self-save. We can't do enough righteousness, and we will be judged. So we need good news. So the third point here is the good news of salvation is rooted in the meta narrative. There is a long story unfolding the good news. It starts in Genesis chapter three with the Protevangelum, the first preaching of the gospel in Genesis 3:15, where it says there there's going to be a war. That is, the seed of the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. So in the end, the seed of the woman will win. So there you have the meta narrative in capsule form, in summary form, in one verse. And so the gospel is the good news of how the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. So that's that's what we have to recognize is that we have a long history, a story. All of the Old Testament is part of it. The New Testament is part of it. It culminates in Revelation 20, 21 and 22. 
So this is just part of the story. It's an unpacking. It's a historical event. It is the meta narrative. Today we have a lot of emphasis on an alternative meta narrative, critical race theory. They want everything to be framed in terms of what they would call racial discrimination. Racial discrimination is a sign of sin. In fact, it's really a misnomer. There's only one race. It's really ethnic discrimination. It's a sign of sin, the fallenness of mankind. And critical race theory offers no solution to it. Christianity explains you know, what you're seeing, the data that the critical race theory people are looking at and misinterpreting, and it provides a solution. This meta narrative of history based on Christ, and part of that is the good news of salvation from sin. Sin is what's calling, causing the ethnic uh, di uh, discrimination, and all, until you deal with sin, you can never solve the problem. Salvation is a call to repentance. In other words, there's something on us. We will respond. If we've been born again, we will change our thinking. We'll change our thinking about Christ. He is Lord and Christ. That is, Jesus is Lord and Christ. Salvation is the good news of forgiveness of sins and divine empowerment. Not only in Jesus do you have forgiveness of sins, that, that is what gives you grace to be able to pass through the judgment but you're also going to be divinely empowered to live the life that you've been given. Salvation is the sovereign act of God. We don't self-save. We can't choose to be saved. God chooses to save us. When you really get that, you'll be, you'll be full of gratitude because you realize that for the grace of God, we could be just like the worst of sinners. In fact, we were the worst of sinners until the grace of God came into our life. Salvation is the impartation of eternal life. And that's what's talked about in Acts 11, that they were given, the Gentiles were given repentance unto life. They were given that. The Holy Spirit gave them that. They did not work their way to it. They didn't do it on their own strength. It was given to them. And finally, faith is the evidence that a person is saved and part of the kingdom of God. You see, the only way you know somebody really knows the Lord is you have to see it in their life. And when that becomes the standard and you are faithfully applying that standard, uh, that will eliminate probably most of the people that you know who profess to be Christians. Sadly, if your community is anything like mine, it is a very, very weak community that is blind and doesn't understand reality well and their theology is very weak, and they do not live in faith. They do not believe, believe what Scripture says, and they are not regulated by the Word of God. Well, there's nothing in Scripture that gives you assurance that they know the Lord. And that's a really hard one because every one of us has friends and relatives that are professing Christians but show no fruit, or we, at least we can't see the fruit. Now, granted, we are not the judge. God is the judge. But we are called to be fruit inspectors. And we have to make decisions, discriminations about how we live and the things we do based on those judgment calls that we are called to make. We need to be very humble about making these calls. We need to leave people room uh, to grow. 
We know that from 1 Corinthians 3, there can be carnal Christians, that is Christians who live, who really know the Lord, who live according to the flesh. There can be that, but that's a dangerous state because you live like pagans. And when you live like that, uh, you can't be trusted. You can't hire those people. You can't work with them. They can't be part of the the leadership of a Christian community. You got to be very careful about dealing with those people until they clearly demonstrate that they truly know the Lord by truly living a life of faith. So that's the challenge is we've got to really get this gospel and all the nuances of the gospel clear in our minds so that we can really see reality well and that we can play our role in the meta narrative. So we can do what God's put us here to do because we each have a calling in that meta narrative. That's what Ephesians 2.10 tells us. We have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb for a work assignment that God has ordained that we do. Ephesians 2.10. That's why your life counts. God has chosen to use human instruments to accomplish his purpose. Just like you saw with Cornelius. The angel did not speak the gospel to Cornelius. He told him, call for Peter. God prepared Peter and then sent Peter, and Peter goes and delivers a message, and the Holy Spirit does his thing. The Holy Spirit did not have to wait for Peter to deliver his message. Holy Spirit could have sovereignly filled them at any point, regenerated them, transformed them at any point. He chose to do it this way. This is the way God works. He uses human instruments. So we want to be available to him even when we don't understand it. It doesn't fit our pictures, but we know the Holy Spirit is sovereignly in control, doing his will, and we are trying to be good observers of where he is working and follow Jesus' pattern when he said in John 5, I only do what I see the Father doing. Now, word of application here. Being silent before God. Now, you can imagine that would be a good word of application. To see reality as God does is challenging. His perspective encompasses the big picture and time frame of the meta narrative. This means that God contextualizes everyone and every event in the context of his plan and purpose for history. To be able to see from this perspective requires metaphysical awareness. That is the ability to see beyond our narcissistic inclinations and see God's intent and purpose for reality. The first apostles struggled to see with metaphysical awareness. They had an erroneous view of the Old Testament scriptures formed by tradition. When the ecclesia was birthed on the day of Pentecost, their tradition was still informing their hermeneutic of scripture. The apostles needed a renewed mind to properly understand the intent and purpose of God. The purpose of the transitional book of Acts is largely to reveal the transformation in thinking that the first Christians experienced. Acts 10 recorded how God transformed Peter's mind concerning the inclusion of the Gentiles into the New Testament ecclesia. And then in Acts 11, Peter's testimony to his fellow apostles became the basis for their renewed thinking. No human has perfect thinking about God. No human's got perfect theology. We don't understand the character and nature of God very well. In various ways, all humans are flawed. Even the best of us are flawed about the nature, plan, and purpose of God. Like the first apostles, we need renewed minds to be able to see with metaphysical awareness. Some examples of flawed thinking today are secular education and separation of church and state. 
These are clearly flawed thinking going on today. Secular education presumes that knowledge exists independent of God, or it is value neutral. Scripture informs us differently. It says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. It says that in the beginning, God. That means everything begins with God. So if you're going to know anything, you have to begin with God. Even if you can't see it or understand it, that is true. This means that the foundation of all wisdom and knowledge is God. Scripture, therefore, informs us that the foundation of secular education is false. It is incorrect. It is an error. This means that secular education is a ruse because the predicate is false. The assumption of secular education built on knowledge independent of God is false. We've got to be very clear on that. There is no secular education. All education is based on some view of God. If the view of God is sound, the education will be sound. If the view of God is not sound, then the education will not be sound, which will be flawed. Whatever you learn from people who claim to be secularist or naturalist or humanist, it is going to be at best through common grace, some knowledge of God. That's at best. It could be no more than that because they're starting denying the very source of all truth and reality. Secondly, separation of church and state presumes that the state must be protected from the church. So this is a second way in which we have flawed thinking going on today. This is a distorted understanding of the founding fathers. They believed that the church needed to be protected from the state. This is quite natural. They came from, a, from England, largely, where they had a state church that was committed to basically doing the will of the king, not the will of God. That was a very corrupt church. And arguably, it still is. I know there are Anglicans today would take exception to that. But you have to look at history. The source, the foundation of the Anglican church was in the 16th century. And it was all about supporting the will of the king. The king wanted a divorce. The pope said no. And the king took over the uh, the church in England. And that's how that, that Anglican world got birthed. So the people that came to the United States were fleeing the persecution they received when they went to the Anglican world and said, we want to help you purify and start serving the purpose of God, not the purpose of the king. And they said, sorry, not interested. We're going to serve the purpose of the king, period. And so the people that came and found this country saw what a church state, how bad it could be, and they wanted no part of it. So they wanted to protect the church from the state. Now, scripturally, Roman 13 teaches that the state is a servant of God and is to help its citizens align with God. That's what it says. That's amazing. In fact, it even calls the state a minister. A minister is a servant of God. This means that the state should enact and enforce laws that reflect biblical values and principles. In the world today, most governments are not looking to scripture to inform public policy. Therefore, as with education, Today's governments of the world make public policy contrary to scriptural guidance. This is a ruse. This is false government. Government sin amok. The ideology of many, if not most people in the world today, is not informed by scripture, but the fantasies of their minds. This is what you see over and over again. The societies of the world are progressively disconnecting from God, who is the source of all truth, which means they're regressing. 
but they will use the euphemism progressive to cover their sin. They're turning to lies and deception as the basis for their lives. Nevertheless, to say this will not go well. So in other words, when we stand up and object and we try to point them to the truth, they do not receive it. It would be better to follow the pattern of the first apostles who, when confronted with the folly of their thinking, became silent. That would be the proper response. That's a response of humility. But the people today, by and large, are not silent. They just get louder. Silence is the way to show humility, submission, and teachability. They, instead of stopping opposing God and surrendering to sound understanding of Scripture, they just continue to rebel. Any society that does this will repent, must repent, and return to biblically-based education. Any society that will repent and return to biblical-based education and public policy informed by Scripture will see the blessing of God because only alignment with God brings sound living and blessing because to live in God's universe requires us to live according to his will and his ways for his glory. May we do that well in Jesus' name. Amen.